Good evening and welcome to a special COVID-19 edition of Black Ink Red Film. I'm your host, Stephen, and with me tonight, as always, is... Is Stephen E. from the heart of the pandemic pandemonium, sitting here in my living room with a shotgun in my lap, guarding my collection of toilet paper. <laughs> Indeed. So we've been away for a while because we were supposed to do the Frankenstein episode and everyone went on lockdown. So we haven't been hanging out like we normally did. And so until we can do it with a production value that we'd really like to do these types of things with where we can actually sit and commiserate, we're giving a special Zoom edition where we're remote. I'm talking on a gaming headset and uh, we're just going to talk about a little bonus things just so you guys know that we're still out here. Stephen E., how has your apocalypse been going? Well, for the most part, I've been doing fine. I mean, the thing is, the longer I'm away from people, the happier I am not being around people. So, you know, I've been down this road before. A couple of years ago when I was in my semi-retirement phase, essentially working from home, I would, I'd go whole days on end without talking to people or being around people. So while I do enjoy interaction with some people, it's this hasn't been a big traumatic thing for me. I mean, it's just... Losing my job at the end of the next month, not getting through to literary agents for another project. So really, this virus is sort of the least of my concerns right now. The least of your concern because you're healthy. To the best of your knowledge, you have not contracted it, correct? That is correct, nor do I have any number of other things that would make me, make me pause health-wise. So yes, my family and I have been blessed. We still have, still have our health, but from a personal standpoint, I'm not really worried about the virus. It's... Uh, other things on my mind. Sounds good. Just for our readers to know or our listeners to know, we are recording this on April 24th in case we hear this in the future. If you're, um, I'm talking to you people in the future who are listening to this episode. If this is the last time you ever hear from either of us because we wind up dead, remember this date. Exactly. So uh, we've been about two months into the pandemic at this point, so it'll be interesting to see how history remembers this time. So that's the state of the world. We're going to continue. We had a big event on February 15th, did we not, Mr. Payne? We did. We turned one year old, which would probably explain some things if that was literal. But yes, we celebrated our birthday. Uh -huh. It was our one-year anniversary of since we started this whole uh, this whole excursion into black ink red film. So we are... As a unfortunately, we missed hitting our birthday, but a lot of people missed their birthdays over the last month or so. But yeah, we turned one year old. Right. And so our original goal was to do about one episode a month, and we're about half that. We've released six episodes in the last year, um, or a year plus, I guess, because again, we're in February. But hopefully, if this special Zoom edition uh, Black Ink Red film goes well, we can spin some sort of you know episode regularity back up. So the special edition today, we're going to just talk quickly about some of the stuff we've seen, some of the stuff we'd like to see. We've got a couple of letters to the editor that we want to talk about. The first thing we want to bring up, one of the more interesting as it relates to horror and sci-fi, is we saw the quite excellent Invisible Man. In fact, I think that was the last movie we saw in theaters before all the COVID shit hit the fan, was it not? Oh, the good old days. Going to movie theaters, seeing movies. Yeah, yeah, that was... That was probably the last movie I saw, and boy, that now seems like it was an eternity ago. Right. And the way things are looking now, it may be the last movie we ever see in a movie theater, too. Well, that's true. I, I was reading some joke about how, like, the, the Oscars for next year, they would, if they were only doing movies that got released in 2020, the, thing, the, uh, 
the only eligible movies would be things like Invisible Man and I don't know what else got released. This well, year. well, I I think you could if that happens, which could very well happen. It's like a strike shortened baseball season. I think you'd probably see Bad Boys Three really do a oh, good. That's right. I think Bad Boys Three would probably beat like Ben Hur for the most Oscars or Lord <laughs> Lord of the Rings, whatever holds the current record. But let's talk about Invisible Man. So I thought Invisible Man was an excellent film. I thought Elizabeth Moss was great. I thought the direction was, you know, that movie is a creepy, slow burn. I think it does an amazing job building tension using nothing other than good old fashioned acting and camera work. You know, it's a, it's a different take, obviously. Uh, we can give a little spoilers away, but it's, it's a different take on the Invisible Man and that he's not necessarily a mad scientist who's turned himself invisible, but he's built himself a Tony Stark-like invisibility suit, and he's stalking Elizabeth Moss's character and making her feel paranoid the entire time. Just superbly done. I, I don't have enough nice things to say about that film. What did you think, Mr. Payne? Yeah, because I, I was pleasantly surprised, because I remember when I saw the trailer... Late last year, I really I had very low expectations for it, not realizing that Lei Wanell or Lei Wall, I, I may be pronouncing his name wrong, was the director behind it. Among other things he's done in his relatively young career, he had made uh, he made a movie called Upgrade last year, a sci-fi mm-hmm. action what film. Are you talking about that? Yeah, which was actually a better version of Venom, but it was released even before Venom came out. That was really an underappreciated, overlooked film. So this is a Mike, much like Mike Flanagan. Leigh Whannell is a very, very talented young genre filmmaker who, you know, I expect really big things from, but yeah, it's a, it, it's an excellent thriller. It's, it's so good. I was surprised it got theatrical release, but it helps <laughs> have universal behind it in a, in an established title. The things I th- really liked about, I mean, for one thing, you know, for the universal purists such as myself, Invisible Man's one of those one of those names and titles where you have a lot more flexibility than you have with something like, say, Dracula or Frankenstein. Never mind the H.G. Wells story. All you really have to do is, well, you have to have a guy in it who's invisible. And you can really <laughs> do anything you want with it beyond that, as they have over the years. But it did. So first of all, it was extremely timely. And it hit on some, you know, very, very timely social issues in terms of, you know, domestic violence and both psychological and physical and uh, things such as that, which I think hits a lot of strong chords right now. And also it, uh, the technology standpoint, I appreciated that he didn't go through great pains to over explain the strange invisibility suit, because when you start doing that, you start drawing attention to how it probably doesn't make any sense. So they were really smart in presenting the technology, but not overly explaining it. And third, what I thought was the most interesting trick that was pulled off of this film is it really was a lot like a paranormal activity film, but it really hit the conventions of one of these supernatural thrillers, but in a way that it actually made sense. Mm -hmm. Because the core problem with every supernatural film, really since maybe the Amityville Horror, is that at some point you ask yourself, why are the demons just screwing around and not just killing these people? Why are they playing the whole, let's move chairs around and have the flies on the wall versus just getting it over with? But this film, which has a lot of that, makes sense because the character is purposely trying to torment and gaslight the our heroine. 
Yes. Because yeah. he's a dick. At the end of the yeah. day. At the end of the day, he's a dick. Yeah. He's the invisible dick. The fact that I I think he hit the right tone and uh, leveraged a subgenre in a sneaky sort of way, I thought was extremely clever. So this is a class thriller. This is really one of those you put at the top of the list. I'm glad it got theatrical release because I think if it, if it had Universal behind it, it probably wouldn't have, quite frankly. And I'm glad that it actually did really well at the box office, too. So, yeah, this was, uh, this was my favorite thriller in a while. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I want to like play off something you said there. You talked about how they didn't spend a lot of time describing the suit. It's like they make an offhand comment, oh, he's a optics genius. And then you see the lab as she's like escaping. And I think to that point, just the effectiveness, how tight the storytelling is, the opening of the movie with Elizabeth Moss's character attempting to escape from this compound. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to have any preamble of like what he'd done to her, how she got there. You knew exactly that she was tormented and the panic she was feeling, you know, like, like from the first frames of the film and, and you're feeling the tension of it. So just, just really effective storytelling. Yeah, yeah. No, and a lot of it vi- very visually done too. Um, yeah. uh, you know, so this was, I, I totally agree. And I would say, you know, uh, we talked about Flanagan and I think it's got one of the best sort of jump scares that I've seen in a while, or at least since Flanagan's jump scare in Hill House, when she finally does expose him in the attic with the pain, I thought that was like really well done. So yeah, go out and see it. Invisible man. Um, I think it's actually because of the COVID stuff. It's already, uh, it's already see, out there. As I say, I think it's our, yeah, you can already get it at home, which was a smart move on their point too. The iron was still sort of hot and they, um, you know, they were wise to get it out there early. So yeah, you can see it at home right now. Yeah. The other After one we could you listen to the show, go watch. It. <laughs> That's right. Put us on pause right now. <laughs> Come back and tell us what you think. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the outsider, but that might require its own episode. I just finished watching that on Netflix. Full disclosure, I have not read the novel The Outsider. It's sitting on my floor in that big pile of books in my bedroom. But I think the one thing I would say is while well and so jason bateman's in it for a bit and i i have a man crush on him i think he's a great actor it felt similar to sharp objects it just felt like that's a story that didn't need 10 episodes to tell it that it probably could have been wrapped up in about somewhere between four to six Stephen, i don't i didn't even ask you this did you get a chance to see it I have not seen it, nor have I read the book, so I can't really offer a whole lot of insight other than there's got to be kind of a formula out there for length of book can equate to X number of TV episodes efficiently because that seems to be an ongoing pattern with a lot of these, uh, you know, short one TV series as they even short run at eight or 10 episodes, they usually find a way of being like two episodes too long. Right. Yeah. I would say if you're a King fan, you should probably check it out, obviously. Um, it's got, oh, shit, I can't remember his name, the the actor who's leading it. We'll come back on that. Maybe I'll edit it back in. It's that one guy that was in Star Wars, and you're going to know him when you see him. Alec Guinness? Yes, Alec Guinness. That's exactly who it was. It's that one actor from Star Wars whose names I'm forgetting, and he's a Brit, but he doesn't play a Brit in this one. He's got an American accent. But oh, it's Alec Guinness. It is Alec Guinness. Exactly right. The actor I couldn't think of is Ben Mendelsohn. Mr. Payne, we actually have received a letter from the editor or a letter to the editor here. So who exactly is our editor? 
uh, I guess that would be me. I had the one who edited oh, all these uh, okay. podcasts together. Well, good for you and your multitasking. For those of you, and almost, I'm pretty certain that almost anybody who's listening to this know that I do a gaming project on the side. And one of our, the guy who wrote the letter, um, Nola Burt, Nola Burt, who we've spoken of in the past, apparently his real name is Robert Nemeth. I had the pleasure of playing with him at a gaming convention, a virtual gaming convention. So I ran Creep Scrag Creep, uh, an adventure I wrote a couple of years ago. And he was at our virtual table and he's a great guy. And uh, it was a lot of fun. In fact, it was a two-parter. So we're going to be doing the second part of it this Sunday. Nola Burt writes to us, Hello, Stevens. First, thanks for a great podcast. I'm really enjoying your insights on both the books and movies discussed so far. Second, I have a few thoughts regarding Dr. Sleep and The Shining. Now, mind you, it's been months since we did that episode and seen those movies, but we're just going to go with this anyway. While I thought Dr. Sleep was a good movie, I wouldn't call it a great movie. I think Mike Flanagan's attempt to reconcile the books, which I have not read, with Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining were well, was well executed, yet there were some major disconnects for me. Kubrick's The Shining is terrifying, a masterpiece of horror film. Flanagan's Dr. Sleep is a good horror film that appeals to the popular horror film audience. Here are some of my quibbles, and he's about to go through his quibbles. So, um, this is his quibble list. His quibble list, and he's got hate here, and I'm just going to hit the top, just going to chew through a couple of these. I thought the acting of Kylie Curran as Abra was mediocre. Ewan McGregor and Rebecca Ferguson were better, but not exceptional. I will say that Ewan McGregor was exceptional in, what was the Harley Quinn movie that came out? The Birds of Prey. That's the other one. That was it. <laughs> to go back to our original discussion, I think Birds of Prey and uh, Invisible Man will be the only two movies up for Oscar. So, tech, correct me if I'm wrong. Ewan McGregor was in a Star Wars film, wasn't he? He was. He was Obi-Wan. In other words, he played a young Alec Guinness. <laughs> That's true. There's a theme going on here. And he did. All right, so back to Nola Burt. The true knot weren't really frightening. They felt like a mixture between the craft and the Lost Boys, but with an outdated fashion sense. (laughs) I just recently watched the Lost Boys, and my daughters were asking me, did people really dress like that in the 80s? The 80s bring up a lot of questions. (laughs) There's always things about the 80s that we need to question. The 80s were an interesting time. Okay. The containers that the true knot kept the steam in just looked like fancy coffee thermoses. Likewise, the scenes where they inhaled the steam just looked goofy. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go. I'm going to give Nola Bert, uh, um, if, if this were like checks and dings and whatnot, I'm, I'm going to go with him on this one. Yeah. It's, it was just hard to make. The concept of steam is a good one that you have to, that you're preying on the life force of these things with the shining. But actually portraying that on film was a little difficult. So I would agree with that. And here's the big one in my mind. While I love the recreation of the aerial shots leading up to the Overlook Hotel, I thought the hotel itself seemed small. In The Shining, the hotel felt cavernous, adding to the sense of unease that built up throughout Kubrick's masterpiece. Stephen, what do you think about that comment? Let me hit the last couple. Uh, the whole thing about this, I didn't have a big problem with it. I, it's one of those things that probably, that if I remember kind of, Sounded or looked or sounded or felt better in the book, maybe, than it was going to translate to screen. Because, you know, what was the steam going to be in? You know, they weren't going to have some kind of elaborate, fancy container for it. It was going to be in something like wafer a wafer form. Yeah. 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 So, eh, uh, um, it wasn't a problem for me. But 
as far as the uh, the overlook, it's an interesting comment. I I don't remember seeing the movie when I saw the movie. Now it's been a while since I saw the movie, and I've been drinking since two o'clock this afternoon, and it's now almost ten. So there you go. But I don't remember having a feeling that the overlook seems small. But I would say this about it: the overlook in the Kubrick film was shot in this massive. 70 millimeter panoramic view so the overlook really felt massive in kubricksville both the interior and exterior shots in the flanagan film and dr sleep we get glimpses of parts of the overlook so there aren't really many scenes in it other than a couple exterior ones where you get a great feel for it so i i can't totally disagree with the, the comment i don't remember it specifically being a problem but if he felt that way, I think I could probably get it. It's yeah, it's been so long since I, I don't really honestly I think, you know, because I've only seen Doctor Sleep the once. And and I think the challenge I was having with it is because you're seeing it and because you're seeing such an iconic location again, the the whole time I'm watching it, I'm looking at every detail. So I, I really need to see it again so I can actually enjoy the film as opposed to I'm looking at the overlook and I'm, I'm just studying the film for what's happening and kind of like the story's getting away from me. I'm like, I'm sort of taking myself out of the film, looking at the aspects of the filmmaking versus going along with the story itself the first time I'm seeing it. So, well, Kubra, I mean, the thing, and I think I talked about this the first, when we, when he did the initial um, episode on Dr. Sleep, you have to, Flanagan works without a net here in that, He's taking the Stephen King novel, which is a sequel to his own, to the, to the Stephen King novel, The Shining, there, and trying to be faithful to that, but also at the same time making a movie sequel to the Kubrick film, The Shining, which, as we all know by now, didn't exactly mirror the book that closely. So he really was kind of walking a tightrope in that he was likely to piss off one crowd or the other with either the fan of the book or the fan of the movie. Right. I thought he pulled it off very well. I don't think it's a great film. I think it's a very good movie. A again, it's one of these things where it's, it's a polarizing thing. I, and you either really liked what he did or you didn't. You, most people appreciate the craftsmanship of it, but it's hard for me to really get into an argument with anyone over it because the tightrope he was walking, it's easy for someone to be on either side of it. And this is one of those cases where it was very dangerous for him to re try to recreate anything that Kubrick had done. So, yeah. you know, you try that, you've got a pair on you. <laughs> you were, you were behind the camera with a full set of stones doing. Yes, that. you definitely are. So all the praise in the world to him for that. And, uh, and, and for the most part, I think he pulled it off. I mean, let's not even forget, and I don't want to get too off track here, but you know, just the chance he took with having, actors play people who are in the original film right you know and, and particularly you know someone henry thomas playing jack nicholson at one point so there were a lot of gutsy and controversial moves that he made in it with this film so they were they were inevitably going to make some people i don't think they're gonna make anybody happy there people were either going to accept them or they were going to not like them at all i fell into the i generally accepted them camp yeah, and I think and you did a whole episode on this. So just to, if I had to do a one-liner that recaps my thoughts on our episode that we did, it's like 
Flanagan had a tough time because he had to do a sequel to both the novel and the film. Stephen yeah. King didn't even have to do that, right? Stephen King blew up the Overlook in his novel, which I thought was a mistake. And so Flanagan was able to work with that. Um, I'm not going to argue. Yes, I think that both are masterpieces, both novel and Shining film are masterpieces. So yeah, so Flanagan had a tough job and I think he handled it about as good as anybody could given what he had to work with. And ultimately he's not Stanley Kubrick, right? St- Kubrick was a genius in filmmaking. So it's going to be hard to get that level of quality. Well, and frankly, in the Doctor Sleep, though, the point of the film, the point of the of the first film of the The Shining was the Overlook. Right. the The Overlook was a massive character. In Doctor Sleep, it's not meant to be an overwhelming piece. It's meant to be a recall. You know, it's yeah, meant to yeah. be about Danny going back to key parts of the Overlook. I mean, almost. I mean, it's like a, it's almost like dream sequence flashbacky sort of revisits to key areas that gave the most impression. So we didn't need to have giant interior shots of the Overlook again. Again, uh, if we had, it would have been cool, but it wasn't necessary. So it was a matter of different intent with uh, with Flanagan than with Kubrick as well. Yeah, so hold that thought. So Nola Bird makes a, non- yeah, a yeah. comment about location. And I guess the one thing I would say about that is since this letter has come out and the filming and all that, I did read on Dark Horizons that... Netflix has uh, opted for a prequel series to The Shining just called The Overlook. Yes. Which I, I think that. would be interesting because to your point, which is completely accurate, the main, you know, the protagonist or the antagonist of The Shining really is the hotel itself. It's not Jack. Right. Um, let's just finish out this letter here. Uh, Nola Bird disagrees with Stephen E. He thinks that Wendy Torrance, Shelley Duvall actually is a strong fighting character he gives a bunch of examples of fighting off jack and clubbing him with a baseball bat blah 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 just lots of examples i'd love to hear steven n's take on whether okay so now we're in our rpg land i'd love to hear steven n's take on whether any rpgs have ever replicated location as the ultimate source of evil like both the shining and pet cemetery games like D&D, there are evil creatures that have lairs and their evilness despoils the surroundings, but I'm not real cognizant of a location being evil that then despoils all the creature in that area. I guess I would give three examples, two old, one new. The two old ones, I would say two Mahors would be our first one, and I wouldn't say it's the location of that that's affecting the creature. It's still an evil lair. It's a Syrex lair. But I think the location itself is, you know, it's the Tomb of Horrors. You're talking about that actual tomb. It's, I think it's that tomb and its trappings, which makes that such a um, powerful novel or powerful adventure as opposed to the big boss monster at the end. I think even more so than that on the old D&D games would be Temple of Elemental Evil. And it's another similar deal. There's a bunch of factions going on. There's a Gadamoy or whoever it is. It's the demon thing at the end of it. But really, it's the personality of that place, I think, more so than the things you're fighting in it. Captures the spirit of, of the question. And then in more modern times, and again, I only play Dungeon Crawl Classics, mostly at MCC. I would say Harley Stroh's Bride of the Black Manse is a, it's a great haunted house adventure and it's got a lot of personalities in it. So 
it's the ghosts inside that house. It's maybe it's closer to Hill House, but it's the ghosts inside that house that's making that more interesting than just the uh, the thing. So that would be my three off the cuff kind of quick answers on that one. Well, now that we've probably had half our listeners switch over to the latest COVID nineteen updates on YouTube, since we start. <laughs> I, the only other one I would add with my my comparatively limited knowledge was couldn't you throw Ravenloft in there too? Yeah, so it, Ravenloft was an interesting one because, you know, obviously Strahd is such a, or Strahd Vodzorovich, whatever his name is. But I think Ravenloft, yeah, the mood of that entire setting was much stronger than I think anything D&D had done at the time, other than maybe Temple of Elemental Evil. It's kind of in that ballpark that the temple was in. In case you guys hear, again, we're doing the Zoom edition. I think my daughter's getting snacks in the back room over here. And then there's some more stuff in here. Long email. Thanks for giving me time to think about it. So, hey, thank you, Nola Bird, for writing in. Always appreciate that. And then uh, anything else you wanted to give a shout-out, Stephen I understand? Yeah, uh, thank Chris Lucas, who had – it's been a while now, but a lot of things seem like they've been a while now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Chris Lucas had sent me a message really appreciating what we've done, 11 our episodes. So uh, Chris is a terrific guy, awesome, awesome artist as well. Glad to hear back from him. Always good to hear from he and his dad, Eric, and his Eric's wife, Sheila, who are all faithful listeners and followers and good friends as well. So I appreciate the, uh, the notice from Chris. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, we hope to be back with our Frankenstein episode soon. We have read, well, we have uh, watched several Frankenstein movies, including oh, what was the one that we just saw with Victor Frankenstein? Yeah, McAvoy in it. That was yeah, that was something. Don't expect a lot of time on that one, folks. We're yeah. not going to be spending a lot of time talking about that one. Are we going to be talking? Are we going to spend enough time talking about uh, Kenneth Branagh with his shirt off? I don't know about the shirt off part, but sure, the the Branagh film was a. Uh... Hey, didn't Kenneth Branagh work with Alec Guinness at some point? <laughs> I think I think he actually played. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm All sure right, they, everybody... <laughs> I'm sure they've overlapped at some point in their careers. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We hope to be back with a regular episode soon. Stay healthy and keep reading. Take care, folks. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.